For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. And the title of our sermon this evening is Sobering Silence. Sobering Silence, Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. So welcome back this evening to our Lord's Day exposition of the Apocalypse, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is a revelation given to the Apostle John, exiled on the island of Patmos in the first century. And Revelation, as we consider this book together, Revelation is the capstone of the canon. And as such, this is or portrayal, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord rules and reigns as victor on the throne of his kingdom. His kingdom has been inaugurated. Uh, As he walks in the midst of the lampstands with the church during her time of testing in the wilderness, as he returns in glory and in judgment at the end of this age to usher in a new creation and to consummate then the everlasting kingdom which has been inaugurated in his first coming. And tonight, as we consider those things and that that complex of events. Tonight, we arrive in chapter 8 at the conclusion of this second literary cycle in Revelation, a cycle that comprises the seven seals. The first six seals were opened to us in chapter 6. The sixth seal now revealing the return of the Lord Jesus Christ And in a language matching that of the Lord himself in his Olivet Discourse with the disciples in Matthew 24, this is how this is being brought to a close. Chapter 6, verse 12. John said, I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb." For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Our literary cycle, the second of seven literary cycles, deals with this time period between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. And we see now at the end of chapter 6, now beginning again at the beginning of chapter 8, we see the Lord returning and returning in judgment. Who is able to stand? Now that answer to that question given briefly in an interlude that comprised chapter 7. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? The answer to that question given in chapter 7. Those who are sealed by God are those who stand. Those who are God's people are those who stand. Those with his name engraven on their foreheads. Those are the ones who stand. We see them in chapter 7 portrayed in two ways. First, They're portrayed as the church militant, arrayed for battle in their typological wilderness, the glorious church on earth, seen as the 144,000, the church preserved by God, the church sealed by God, the church during the time of her tribulation. This is the church in the wilderness, so to speak. 
as Israel was arrayed in her wilderness wandering. Do you see? Israel, typological of the church. Second, we see the church triumphant, arrayed before the throne in heaven, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a multitude which no man can number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Who is able to stand? Those people are able to stand. Those who have been preserved by God. Those who have endured through the great tribulation, as our text says, and have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, both of those pictures represent that one people of God, those preserved by God, those nurtured by God, cared for by God, from their walk in, their, in the wilderness to their ultimate and eternal glory at the end of the age. So in chapter 8 then, when we, as we come back now, we come back to the seals and we conclude with the seventh and final seal. If you remember, through chapter 6, we have the opening of the six seals. We have an interlude in chapter 7 that answers that question, who is able to stand? Now in chapter 8, we come back to conclude the literary cycle. We come back to the seventh and final seal. Upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord... Revealed at the opening of the sixth seal, upon the pronouncement of the wicked who dwell upon the earth, in chapter 6, verse 17, the great day of his wrath has now come. Now, in continuation then of this cycle, chapter 8, verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, think with me again, and let's make put this together. Chapter 8 connects to and is a continuation of chapter 6. And I don't want to be too mundane about this, but six seals and then a seventh seal. The seventh seal is connected to the first six seals. Do you see? Right? So one through seven comprises the entire literary cycle. In other words, you got to look past the chapter divisions. Those chapter divisions weren't in the original. They weren't there uh, when this was originally written. And for those who have been uh, left behind in dispensational premillennialism, you got to look past your charts for a second because these things aren't going to be chronological. Uh, you got to forget the movies for a second. You got to put those movies out of your mind, right? Um, the seventh seal belongs to the group of six that precede it. That's the point that I want you to get here at the outset. It concludes the cycle. And there is one cycle comprised of all seven seals. The structure of that is really clear. As we walk through Revelation, the structure is going to be exceedingly clear. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, okay? Seven literary cycles. What John says regarding the structure, or what John says is really important, but what John says, or in the way that John says it, in the structure that John says it, is also really important. In chapter 6, verse 10, look there with me. Chapter 6, verse 10, the saints ask the question, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? If you remember, that was at the opening of the fifth seal, and the martyrs are under the altar, and they're crying out to God, How long? How long? Well, the answer to that question is revealed in the seventh seal. It's upon the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. How long? Now, <laughs> essentially, the seventh seal. At this point, great, the great day of his wrath has now come. And when that terrifying judgment in the seventh seal is revealed, 
there is silence in heaven. That silence, here's the point of that structural commentary. The silence does not signify that the seventh seal is empty or that it is devoid of content or that the seventh seal contains the trumpets and bowls that now chronologically follow after. That's not what that silence means. There's a reason for the silence, and I want to show you that from the scriptures this evening. There's a reason for that silence. It does not mean that the seal is devoid of content. In other words, those who are motivated by that system want to make all that you see here chronological so that chronologically following the sixth seal is this seventh seal which contains bowls and trumpets. And those bowls and trumpets, trumpets and bowls, follow chronologically upon the sixth seals that preceded them. And this is not chronological. What we're going to see in seven literary cycles is now at the conclusion of the second literary cycle, we're going to see the opening of a third literary cycle. And that third cycle, comprised of seven trumpets, will recapitulate or tell again the story of the first seven seals from a different perspective. Okay? That structure, extremely important if you're going to understand not only Revelation, but your eschatology. Right? Seven literary cycles, all of them contained, one following upon the other, but that does not imply that they are chronological. Okay? The seventh seal concludes the seals and concludes this literary cycle in the book. As we've seen, that second cycle, think with me and remember back through the sermons that we've already had on this. That literary cycle began with the enthronement of the Lamb, the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it concludes then with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment. So from the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, way back in chapter 4, chapter 5, now to the seventh seal and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in judgment in Revelation chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. So it's concluding that cycle. We'll see very clearly that that's going to be recapitulated in the cycle of trumpets. And the cycle of the trumpets, remarkably parallel to the cycle of the seals. We're going to draw all kinds of parallels between the account of the trumpets and the account of the seals when we begin that cycle, Lord willing, next week. Now, it'll be the week after. (laughs) So as we've discussed then, these cycles are essentially parallel because they essentially cover the same period of time. They cover our period of time. That's really important for us as we learn how to apply this book. These cycles are covering our period of time, that period of time that comprises the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ until his return. Different perspectives of that period, and each perspective draws us a little bit closer to the eternal state and our glorification, our dwelling with God in eternity. That period then, each cycle represents the rule, the reign, the work, the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it reveals Jesus Christ in his work during this entire age, from his first coming to his second coming, including his rule and his reign and his work and his intercession, all of that on a part of his people as he walks amidst the lampstands, his care for the church and their wilderness wandering. This is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from his first to his second return. So, Eight chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 1 then. When he, when the Lamb of God then, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. You remember, 
the he there referring to Jesus Christ, he's the one worthy to open these seals. He was the victor. He was the one who was found to be triumphant. He prevailed. He is the quintessential overcomer. It's in him that you and I are charged with overcoming through faith, right? Through faith in him, we are to overcome. He is the one who is found worthy. He is the one who is now executing all of the decrees that are written within that scroll. If the end of chapter 6 reveals the coming day of judgment from the perspective of those who dwell on the earth, then the opening of the seventh seal reveals the arrival of that day of judgment from the perspective of heaven. Now think with me. These perspectives can be connected through the language of the text. If you look at chapter 6, verse 12, in chapter 6, you have the the wailing, the, the lamentation of those who dwell on the earth, calling for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them, to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. All right, it's it's the, the arrival of the day of judgment from the perspective of those who dwell on the earth. In chapter 6, verse 12, at the opening of the sixth seal, notice there's an earthquake. That earthquake in chapter 6, verse 12, experienced with cosmic disturbances. And all of those disturbances, that earthquake, from the perspective of those who dwell on the earth. Then, chapter 8, verse 5, we see those same cosmic disturbances with an earthquake. And those disturbances, that earthquake experienced or viewed from the perspective of heaven now. The way that G.K. Beale described this, I think is really helpful. He said, from the shrieking cries of terror by ungodly earth dwellers with the earth in utter upheaval to a sobering silence in heaven. Right? One perspective and then another perspective. Do you see? With the seventh seal, all of the seals on the scroll now are loosed. All of the seals are loosed. They're all opened. Everything with the opening of the seventh seal, everything is brought to its appointed end. If you remember Daniel's account, In Daniel chapter 12, he's asking the angel, uh, how long will these things be? When will these things take place? What does the angel tell him? Seal them up in the scroll because these things pertain to an appointed time at the end, right? At the end. That's Daniel chapter 12. Now that time of the end has come. The Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 8 has returned in judgment. And what do we see? All seven seals on the scroll are opened. All seven are loosed, which means... Everything that is written in the scroll, front and back, if you remember that, filled with lamentation and woe, we saw that in the book of Ezekiel, all that is written in the scroll now is being poured out, is being brought to its appointed and determined end by God, executed here by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All that has been written in the book that was sealed in the days of Daniel, now being brought to pass. Again, the silence here in heaven, the silence does not represent a void The silence doesn't represent emptiness. Silence in scripture is representative of judgment. It is the sobering silence, think with me, the sobering silence that must certainly precede the execution of a death sentence. Put yourself in that room before they throw the switch. Can you imagine? When all of that is taking place, and the death sentence is about to be executed, there is silence, a sobering, a deafening silence in that room. Your eyes fixed upon the guilty. 
as you await the execution of the sentence. It is a weighty matter. It is a sobering silence. Look with me at Zephaniah, Zephaniah chapter 1. I want to give you some examples of this. Zephaniah chapter 1. I know that Zephaniah is in my Bible. There we go. <laughs> Zephaniah chapter 1. And look there beginning at verse 1. Now this is, this is worth reading in its entirety. I want you to bear with me. This is very helpful. Verse 1. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume Everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. Even at the outside, outset, what are we talking about? We're talking about judgment. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. And against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. Those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord. But who also swear by Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord. And have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God. You see the connection. God calling for silence at the execution of his judgment, at the execution of the sentence. Be silent in the presence of the Lord. Why? Because the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. In other words, he's going to slay them like a temple sacrifice. Do you see? Verse 8, it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. In the same day, I will punish all those who leap over the threshold, who fill their master's houses with violence and deceit. And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of a mournful cry from the fish gate, wailing from the second quarter, loud crashing from the hills. In other words, from the perspective of the bar of God's judgment, there is silence in the courtroom. But what's going on and on those who judgment is being poured out on? Wailing, weeping, lamentation, and woe. Do you see? Noise. In other words, from those who dwell on the earth, silence before the bar of God's justice. Wailing from the second quarter, loud crashing from the hills. Verse 11. Wail to you, inhabitants of Maktesh, for all the merchant people are cut down. That word means silenced. They are silenced. All those who handle money are cut off. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Therefore, their goods shall become booty and their houses a desolation. They shall build houses, but not inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and not drink their wine. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. See the, the, the contrast with the silence of those before the Lord in verse 7. And you hear the tumult and the utter panic 
among those subjected to God's judgment. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There, verse 14, the mighty men shall cry out. This is the day, verse 15, a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Do you see the the apocalyptic cosmic disturbances involved with the day of the Lord? We see this language uh, in this way, typological of the final day of judgment, right? All throughout the Old Testament, here specifically talking about a final judgment that is coming. Verse 16, a day of trumpet. A day of alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men. They shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by fire, by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make speedy riddance of all those who dwell in the land. It's powerful, amen? The response of those around the throne to this, day of dis- uh, this display of divine power and divine justice is silence. Be silent before the Lord. Uh, in other words, their mouths shut watching the execution of this sentence. It's like walking through a cemetery. Right? The joking and the, the light frivolity ends. <laughs> uh, why is that? We, we, we have a sense of that kind of weight Um, that kind of uh, sober reality, and it provokes, it compels silence. God himself, be silent before me. Our mouths are shut. There is no case that can be made. Every mouth, that's Romans chapter 3, right? Every mouth shut. We all become silent before the bar of God's justice. And we too have been indicted under our own sin, haven't we? It's not something now, having been saved by the Lord, having been forgiven of our sins, that all of a sudden now we're, we're puffed up with pride as though we, how righteous we are. It's good for those wicked people to simply not like that. We're not to boast in that way. That's a sinful boast. Our boast is in the Lord. Our boast is in the, the imputed righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we, we weren't perfect. <laughs> we're a sinful people. It just compels, it provokes this silence. Look at Zechariah chapter 2. Zechariah, a couple of books to the right. Zechariah chapter 2. This is a, a sober reality. The people of God, it says in Revelation, will sing hallelujahs at the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ at his return when he judges the wicked. Because of his righteousness, because of his victory, he is just and he judges injustice. Here at the pouring out of that, um, we see in heaven, we see on the part of God this call to a silent, a, a contemplative silence, if you will, observing this pouring out of God's judgment. Zechariah chapter 2, the prophet Zechariah is given a vision of a man with a measuring line in his hand. We're going to look more at this text when we get to Revelation chapter 11. Uh, And he is on his way to measure Jerusalem. The text is about God gathering his people from the four corners of the earth. 
to establish his kingdom. Okay, so the text is about the restoration uh, or the establishment, the inauguration, if you will, of that kingdom which will never be destroyed, the everlasting kingdom. And at the same point of, of consummating that kingdom, there is a judgment upon the nations. God's wrath being poured out upon the nations at the same time. Look at verse 1. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? He said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. There was the angel who talked with me going out. Another angel was coming out to meet him, who said to him, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. God's going to prosper it greatly. For I, verse 5, says the Lord, will be a wall of fire all around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Amen. This, again, is a picture of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, where God dwells in the midst of his people. Verse 6, up then, up, flee from the land of the north, says the Lord, for I have spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven, says the Lord. Up, Zion, escape. You who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, turn at the preaching of the gospel, flee to Jesus Christ. I'm thinking of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Flee the city of destruction. Don't turn to the right or to the left. Flee, right? Get out of that city. Verse 8, for thus says the Lord of hosts, he sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For surely I will shake my hand against them. They shall become spoil for their servants. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I am coming. I will dwell in your midst, says the Lord. Many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day, and they shall become my people. Praise God. And I will dwell in your midst, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Now, what is the response called for in witness to these events? Verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord. Why? Because he is aroused from his holy habitation. The Lord is about to work. The Lord is about to come in power. And the Lord is going to judge the wicked, those who dwell on the earth. The Bible's replete. There's, there are multiple texts, multiple texts like this in Scripture. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. Woe after woe after woe pronounced against the wicked, promised judgment upon them. And then in verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord said to the prophet Amos chapter 8, verse 2. The end has come upon my people Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. And the songs of the temple shall be wailing in that day, says the Lord God. Many dead bodies everywhere. They shall be thrown out in silence. Daniel said that he lied. Uh, he lay silent on his bed after hearing of God's coming judgment. Those things troubling uh, Daniel's mind and heart. It could be that the silence in Revelation chapter 8 verse 1 is the silence of heaven while the last judgment is being poured out upon the wicked. Right? That silence in heaven as the judgment is being, as the sentence is being executed, so to speak, as the switch is being thrown. Or it could be the silence that follows the death of the wicked. In Revelation, that's where the hallelujahs ring out. When God's victory 
over all of his enemies is finally secure. I think it's more likely that this is a silence that takes place while the judgment is being poured out. The point of the silence, think with me, the point of the silence is the horror of it. The terror associated with God's undiluted wrath being poured out on those who dwell on the earth. Words simply fail in that moment. It's a sobering thought. However, if you think with me, there's also, isn't there, uh, a worship, a reverence. There's an awe in the silence. When God raises himself, so to speak, in power to execute his judgments upon those who dwell on the earth, there is this sense of weight, this sense of reverence, this sense of awe that accompanies God in divine power pouring out his wrath in judgment. The justice of God pouring out on those who dwell on the earth. There's um, a sense in which God's people stand in awe. Joel Beakey said this. I thought it was helpful. The cries of the martyrs for divine justice, the roaring earthquake, the dissolution of this world, the screams of the wicked as Christ's wrath falls upon them, give way to an awe-filled silence as every mouth is quiet, and even with the saints and angels, they stand amazed at the glory of the Lord. Let there be silence as the judge of all the earth carries out his righteous sentence. In chapter 8, verse 1, that lasts for half an hour. Silence for about a half an hour. It's interesting, the length of the silence there. In chapter 18, we see that the downfall of Babylon, the downfall of Babylon results in an eruption of praise. Um, There will be none of God's people who look back fondly like Lot's wife at the fall of Babylon. That's not going to take place in Revelation 18. (laughs) There will be eruptions of praise that the Lord God has fulfilled all that which he has decreed to come to pass. But during that time, the texts there say that the downfall of Babylon takes about an hour. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? God in power, the downfall of that entire system, the downfall of Babylon takes about an hour. Both texts refer to the same event, Revelation chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 18. The hour of testing that will come upon the earth, chapter 3, verse 10. That hour of testing that will come upon the earth, verse 10, the kings of the earth, they stand at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And those in heaven silent as the judgment is poured out. Now, while this silence fills heavens, fills the heavens, there's no indication given that this will be the only perspective that John is given of these events, right? There will be other perspectives given. Chapter 2, or 8, verse 2, then, there is this perspective of heaven to the arrival of the great day of judgment. And while that arrival of the great day of judgment is taking place in John's vision, John looks and notices already 
already that there are angels gathering trumpets. <laughs> Verse 2, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. It's interesting here in the, in the structure of this particular text that John knits this account to what comes next, as if to say there's another perspective coming. He alerts us, so to speak, this won't be the only vision that's given. There's more to come. That said, we're knitted together with the account that comes after. Our account will continue. We'll learn about those trumpets then in verse 6. Now that said, verses 3 through 5 pick up and conclude the description of final judgment that began in chapter 6, verse 3. Then another angel. In other words, uh, one that follows the prior angels. And again, this shows us the connectedness of these seals. There were other angels and then now in verse 3, another angel connected to those that preceded him. This angel follows those who just preceded him. The account isn't quite concluded. Verse 3, another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. Now think with me, what altar is he referring to? We learned back in the opening of the fifth seal what that altar was. It was the altar of incense. It's not the altar of sacrifice, not the altar of burnt offering. This is the altar of incense that is closest to the throne room, if you will, the, the Holy of Holies. That's the altar under which the, martyr, the martyred saints are crying out to God, how long, O Lord? Right? They're crying out to him, how long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They are offering up a prayer to God as the incense. That incense described as the prayers of the saints. Right? That incense representing our prayers and that incense ascending to God seated upon his throne. Think with me, verse 3. This angel, verse 3, was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. What do we take from, taking from that image? This angel, acting as priest, and not just any priest here at the altar of incense, he's acting as the high priest, and he is taking that which represents the prayers of the saints and much of them, verse 3, and offering it up to the Lord God. He is offering, as it were, in a mediatorial way, as high priest, our prayers, lifting them before the throne of God. He's serving as high priest in the heavenly temple, interceding, as it were, for the saints. Who is this angel in verse 3? Sounds like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not told Spurgeon thought it was the Lord Jesus Christ. I tend to think it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's serving as priest in the heavenly temple, interceding for the saints, offering our prayers up to God. Psalm 141, verse 1, listen. Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer ascend before you as incense, the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So what's about to happen? Verse 3 the prayers of the saints now with this incense being offered up to God who's seated upon his throne, uh, offered up by this um, mediatorial high priest uh, acting angel there at the altar of incense. What is about to happen? God is about to answer that prayer. These prayers are being offered up to God. God is about to answer. Our prayers, by the way, brothers and sisters, are upper, we've learned this from the our study of Revelation, our, our study of Romans on Sunday morning, in particular Romans chapter 8, where not only does the Lord Jesus Christ intercede for his people as our mediator, as our advocate before the throne, but the Spirit himself 
um, with groanings which cannot be uttered. The, the Spirit himself intercedes for God's people. So we, hear, we have here now this intercession before God with the prayers of the saints, with the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe himself, acting as our high priest, mediating for us, lifting these prayers to God. What is going to happen with those prayers? God is going to answer them. Verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So to those, to those martyrs crying out under the altar, crying out to the Lord, how long? The answer is now. The time has come. Now is the time. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer, the, that censer filled with our prayers, infused with the incense of heaven, mediated by the Lord Jesus Christ with the intercession of the Spirit, Verse 5, he took that censer, he filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. I get emotional myself just thinking about it, right? The, and again, that issue of um, silence before the bar of God's judgment. As God, in omnipotent power, pours out his judgment upon the earth. He fills it with fire from the altar. He throws it to the earth. And what happens? There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. We see that language repeatedly. These are indications of the presence of Almighty God. When you see those kinds of cosmic disturbances, it indicates the presence of God. God showing up in power. Listen to this from Exodus 19. Exodus 19, the Israelites are in the wilderness and they're gathered at Sinai. Listen to verse 16. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. Why? Because God is showing up in power. The sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Noises, thunderings, lightning, and earthquake. Incidentally, we're going to see this language again as the same account is recapitulated in future literary cycles. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 7, verse 18. Speaking of the very same day of judgment, verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. Chapter 16, verse 17, listen. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Very same language, do you see? That's intentional. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. 
Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. In other words, this text, Revelation chapter 8, is an example of the quiet before a storm, if you will. And what brings it about, brothers and sisters? What brings it about? The prayers of the saints. What brings this day about is the prayers of the saints. Our prayers will be answered. I don't know about you. If, if you're like me, I, countless times, countless times. Now, Lord, please come. <laughs> Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Make this right Fix this mess. Do away, Lord, with sin and iniquity forever. God, do it in me and do it in your kingdom. Our groaning, the weight of that groaning is heard by God. And he will bring, he will bring our tribulations to a very soon and glorious end. Our prayers lifted up before the throne of God by our Lord Jesus Christ, all to the glory and praise of his own name. So again, brothers and sisters, in closing, God is bringing all that he has decreed to its appointed end. We have a king who rules and reigns from a throne, from the throne of his kingdom, already over his kingdom, already inaugurated, he rules and reigns. And that kingdom will be consummated at his return when he ushers his people into glory and pours out his judgment upon those who dwell on the earth. When he destroys the wickedness, this wicked world system, and establishes fully and finally his kingdom in which righteousness dwells. And brothers and sisters, while we wait his soon return in our own wilderness wandering, let us not grumble as those did whose bodies fell in the wilderness, right? Whom God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. But let us persevere as a faithful, zealous, diligent, joyful witness for our Lord Jesus Christ until he returns to take us home. We should have confidence in him. We should have boldness in our witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithfulness in our service, diligence. Our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We await a city whose builder and maker is God. And he will see to it. And brothers and sisters, we should be praying God has promised in his word, and he promises with this very example, that he hears our prayers and that he will answer them in power and in victory at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to pray together that he would come quickly and the Lord would vindicate his own name, vindicate his own glory in setting everything right. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we pray that. Pray as... John does at the end of this magnificent book. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth in a new heavens and a new earth, in your kingdom where righteousness dwells, that your will would be done, that your glory would be displayed 
that you would be magnified and extolled in the sight of your people, that our Lord Jesus Christ would be high and lifted up on the throne of his glory, that we would be glorified together with him, now sinless in eternity to offer praises, continual praise, the service of praise to your name. May you be just when you speak, just when you judge. Lord, and may we, your people, stand in awe of our God, all-powerful, all-wise, as you execute those judgments that you have decreed. And we are grateful to you, Lord, for these glorious promises. We rest and trust in you. Help us in our wilderness testing, Lord, to have faith in you, to persevere with boldness and with confidence and with zeal, with diligence, with love, with joy, with hope. Help us, Lord, uh, to faithfully live for you during this time. May we not grumble as they did. Those things written for our admonition that we wouldn't fall by the same example of disobedience. I pray, Lord, that we would faithfully obey you, faithfully live for you, that we would be lights shining in a dark place. Help us, Lord, to stand, to be willing to take a stand when the whole world uh, seems to stand against us. I pray that we would be emboldened uh, knowing that your truth, your will, uh, your word abides forever. Thank you, Lord, for this encouragement from your word. Help us to take it with us as we go. Live for you in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.